I would like to invite you this morning to find your Bible and to, whether it's the Pew Bible, you can look at page 1325 or turn to Acts chapter 20. I just want to begin with a thought about the ministry of the one who wrote the book we were going to study here, the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul. And he summarizes this ministry that he had been involved in for a number of years, starting churches in a number of different places in the cities of Roman Empire. And he says, in summarizing what that ministry is like, verse 24, his pattern of ministry, halfway through the verse, he says, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to do what? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Of God. This was the message that he brought to religious and non religious people, as well as those who were the followers of Jesus Christ. It's fair to say that Paul was passionate about the gospel of grace. And here's one thing I'd like to suggest to you this morning that both Christians and non-Christians share at least one thing in common. Both are in desperate need of the gospel of grace. To unbelievers who are cut off from God and the life of God, they have nowhere to hide from their guilt and their shame before an all-knowing, almighty creator God. The gospel of grace brings to them reconciliation brings to them forgiveness and even adoption. Apart from the gospel of grace, unbelievers are hopeless. No one can be good enough to earn somehow their own righteousness before a holy God. Now, the gospel, on the other hand, is a treasure trove to those who are believers, who are susceptible, however, to relating to God on the basis of merit or relating to God on the basis of their performance. You see, believers often slip into this self-reliant mode. And you can tell if you're in this self-reliant mode, oftentimes because you're caught up in joyless duty. You're doing what you do, not because you're thrilled with God and somehow doing it out of gratitude and wonder and amazement. You're doing it out of a sense of, I have to do this. And apart from the gospel of grace, believers oftentimes will lose their perspective on the proper basis of our day-to-day acceptance with God. And therefore, they will tend to live in spiritual poverty. But when the gospel of grace is ignored or somehow minimized by believers, they're overlooking the surpassing greatness of God's saving grace along with His sustaining and His sanctifying grace, which they are found in the promises of the gospel. And so believers, I would suggest to you, believers need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to direct our hearts to rely upon Christ. And in so doing, we will therefore have our minds, our hearts oriented toward God and not so much oriented about ourselves. Well, I hope you have your Bible still open. I'd like us to now uh, find your way into Galatians, uh, chapter 1, page 1383. 
in your pew Bible. And I'd like to sort of, again, go back to this significant point here I'm trying to make as we look at what Paul's passionate comments about the gospel of grace involved to a church that was made up of believers. It's a serious error to assume that the gospel of grace is only meant for those who stand outside of the kingdom of God. That's a big error. As we read this epistle that Paul wrote to first century churches, it's clear that Paul understood that believers are in great need also of the gospel of grace. And if the church of Jesus Christ is to thrive, if it is to be that which is carrying out the mission to which God has given it, we must never let the gospel of grace become secondary. We must never let the gospel of grace be superseded by something else that's been added to our passion and ministry. And since there's only one true gospel of grace, Paul appealed to believers to what? To treasure it, to live it out, and to proclaim it, which happens to be very close to what our mission statement is in our church found in your bulletin uh, under the order of service. So with your Bible open, let's look then at Galatians chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 6 this morning. I am amazed, Paul wrote, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Sorry, I lost my place here. Which is really not another. Only there are some of you, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel or messenger from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. I'm just going to stop right there, partly because I've already found four things that I've sort of drawn from this text Four reasons why the gospel is unique, four reasons why the gospel is vital for Christians and non-Christians alike, and for your sake, I'm only going to cover two today, we'll save two for some other day, hopefully the Lord's Day next week. First point I want to start off here is the gospel of grace is apostolically defined, that is the, the, the apostles are the ones who are to define the gospel. You see, when Paul got an updated report about these churches in Galatia, he reacted to that news with astonishment. He was astounded. He was bewildered. And he was highly upset by that news. The believers who had embraced the gospel of grace, which Paul had proclaimed and taught them, now they're in the process of modifying that, of changing it, tweaking it. So Paul is concerned, verses 8 and 9, about this different gospel, this contrary gospel, which isn't really a gospel at all, he goes on to say. And his reaction about being astonished and being astounded is rooted in his awareness that there is only one true gospel of grace. And that the gospel of grace is not something that he invented or anyone else invented. He says that in verse 12. He got it by revelation. 
And so as we said last week, Paul, as a capital A apostle, that is, he is a first century uh, individual who was selected by Christ, commissioned by Christ, and who had special instruction and opportunities to see the risen Christ, he had the authority, along with the other apostles, to define the gospel. And therefore, they're the ones who are defending it in the first century. Now, see, there are many gospels being proclaimed in today's world. Some people say the gospel is something like this, doing your best to follow the golden rule. Other people say the gospel is found in the belief, coming to the firm belief within yourself that you're really okay. All you need to do is come to understand your inherent goodness. I would say to anyone who would say such a thing as that, this bombing that took place in Boston this past week has many of us asking the question, how could anyone do such an evil act? I would suggest to you, if that is your reaction, and that's where you stop with your reaction to that event, I would suggest to you, you need to be careful, because the reality is that every day, the roots of a similar kind of hatred grow in our own hearts. Because Jesus said, if you've hated someone in your your own heart, It's the same seed level of of anger that eventually grows full bloom into murder. The point is, we all have evil within our hearts. That's the point. And of course, the call for all of us is to repent after a week like this. To say to ourselves, we don't deserve to live through any days in light of what we've done to offend a holy God. It's a call to repent. All of us are so corrupted by sin that we obviously need a radical change in our nature. And so that view of the gospel is really not good news at all, to think that somehow we are wonderfully good. Other people think the gospel is the promise that says something like, God helps those who help themselves. That's no good news, my friend. That's no real gospel. Not according to the gospel of grace. That's the gospel of self-help. To other people, the gospel is coming to God with some sort of seeds of faith, they call them, which are the result of doing so, usually with giving money somewhere, and the result is you get better health and better wealth. My friend, what is the unique gospel of grace? Well, Paul reminded the believers in Galatia that the gospel was proclaimed by him, a capital A apostle, in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, Are you quickly deserting that? He says, I'm sorry, verse 8, the gospel which we preach to you. That's the gospel of grace that I'm talking about here. The one that I defined, the one that I announced. It is the apostles who set the bar. Anything that deviates from this particular message of the capital A apostles is not the true gospel. You say, well, it's an example of what is the true gospel laid out in Scripture. Well, one example would be Paul and his ministry to the Corinthians, who had many problems and many challenges, of course, is that at one point among this church, there was some statement made that a number of people were questioning whether there really is a resurrection. So Paul reminded them of the true apostolic gospel that he had proclaimed to them years earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Now I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. This is the gospel of grace that saves people. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, 
that not you're supposed to be a better person, but that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The point here of the true gospel is that there, we are all accountable to the God who created all things, who made all things. And therefore we have sinned against that God and therefore we will be judged by that God. But God, according to the gospel of grace, has acted in Jesus Christ to save us on the basis of grace. Not on the basis of us improving ourselves. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we take hold of that salvation by repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And the gospel of grace is not a matter of self-help and self-improvement. Now, those who wrote the New Testament were very, very concerned that what was defined as the true gospel would somehow be changed and modified and somehow improved and somehow made better by other people who claimed that they didn't really get it right. And so Jude, the next to last book in the New Testament, he wrote in the context of false teachers who have already arrived. They're already on the scene. He says, they've already invaded the church. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for, what? The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3. Now, what does he mean by the faith? The faith is the entire body of salvation doctrine that is contained in the scriptures. It is Paul who preached this body of gospel truth called the gospel of grace. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. It's that body of truth, the gospel of, of grace is what I've proclaimed to you. And so let me just say this. The yardstick by which then we measure the true gospel of grace is the inspired teaching of the New Testament. And if we are to be clear on the gospel, we must go back to the original authors, authorized proclaimers of the gospel, the New Testament apostles. And so all gospel claims, no matter how many times God is mentioned, as someone talks to you about what they think the gospel must mean, those claims must be assessed by the clear standards of God's word. The gospel is not to be judged by what makes sense to you or makes sense to me. Because on some level, the gospel does not make sense on human reason as if somebody invented it, and therefore it is quite um, logical in that sense. Because for most of us, we would say, well, you have to do something if you're going to gain the huge benefits of what we get in Christ. So Paul says to the Corinthians, he proclaimed the message of the cross. That is, Jesus' incarnation, his sinless life, his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead. And when he proclaims this to people who are unbelievers, they look at it and they say, well, that's foolishness. And he uses the word there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's not only just foolishness, it's nonsense, it's moronic. It's the word from which we get moron. Something you, you, it sounds too good to be true. 
But to those of us who are being saved, Paul says, in the sense that the power of sin and the final redemption of our bodies is yet to be completed, to those of us who understand and have claimed and have seen the wonders and been amazed by grace in the true gospel, it is the power of God at work in our hearts. A gospel of grace is the only gospel that will bring us true liberation, will bring us true freedom, that will bring true transformation to our hearts. It is the gospel of what God does through Jesus Christ to those of us who don't deserve it, on the basis of grace and grace alone. Well, that's the first point. It's a very important point because why? Because Paul spends almost a chapter or two dealing with his authority as an apostle. And so he's clearly being under attack as to who are you to define what the gospel is. And so Paul makes that a big point in this book. Well, the second point in here, I want to move on to a much more uh, practical part here, is our second observation of the text is that the gospel of grace can be rapidly deserted. Rapidly deserted. Paul is astonished that the Galatians were in the process of turning away from this gospel of grace. Look at verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I know you're not a person that probably looks carefully at grammar all the time and makes a big deal of it, but if you look at this text carefully, the verb tense in that first sentence of chapter verse 6 we, sit, we learn that the situation was still unfolding its present tense. It is actively happening at the time Paul is writing urgently this epistle. No wonder that he is, the tone of it is so somber and serious. He's aware that this is taking place even as he was writing. And the Galatian church members are in the process of transferring their loyalty. We pick that up in verse 6, that word deserting suggests the idea of soldiers who are in an army who revolt and who desert that army. So for example, it's being a, for example, if you were a Union soldier, it's like turning and saying, I'm going to become a Confederate soldier. Same idea of desertion there. Or you could be a politician who changes your party, party loyalty. You go from one party to the other party. What Paul is saying here is that he is so concerned that they're betraying, point number A, They're betraying their allegiance to Jesus Christ by going over to the other side. You say, what is that other side? What are we talking about here? How are they deserting the gospel there in Galatia? Well, the best way to answer that is to turn back to Acts 15. If you'll find in your Bible, Acts 15, page 1316, in your pew Bible, to get an insight as to the kind of issue that Paul was up against. After he had left, established the church, here come some people who have got another convoluted gospel, another modifying aspect to the gospel, and they say in chapter 15, verse 1, Acts 15, 1, And some men came down from Judea, come down means they've come from a higher elevation of Jerusalem, down to the lower plains, and began teaching the brethren, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Then slip down to verse 5. Certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the laws of Moses. What do we have here in this text? Well, clearly, some of you are thinking, well, we've heard, we've read about circumcision in the Bible. Wasn't it commanded by God for Abraham and all loyal Jews that they're to practice this? What's the big deal? Well, the believers were being told, these are Gentile believers, these are people who are not circumcised, that's not their background at all. They come to faith in Christ. They're being told that in addition to trusting Jesus for salvation, they must also keep the law of Moses. And to maintain or sustain their salvation, they now must be circumcised. Now listen to the level of Paul's concern. Switch back over now to chapter 5, verse verse 2 of Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 2. say, it seems like he's making a big deal over something that seems rather small. No, this is a big deal. He says, if you're going to add circumcision as something that's required to maintain or sustain your salvation, he's saying Christ is not going to be any advantage to you at all. Verse 2, then verse 4. You have been severed from Christ if you buy into this. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Paul is so concerned, he's asserting that if the Galatian believers chose to be circumcised in an attempt to remain justified by keeping the law, he says they will no longer enjoy the benefits of Christ's atonement. He says they're going to become separated from God's power, they're going to be separated from the fellowship of Christ, they're going to be cut off from enjoying all of the benefits of what Christ has done for them, and they're now going to sort of rely on themselves. It is completely erroneous to think that somehow you can, on the one hand, be saved on the basis of grace alone and rest completely on the finished work of Christ on your behalf and thereby acknowledge that you cannot save yourself, and then at the same time to also claim that you must maintain that saved condition by relying on your own efforts to keep the law. The two do not go together. That's oil and water. They do not mix. Those are two different Gospels. You can't have it both ways. Adding works of piety to the Gospel of grace alone is what spiritual turncoats do. Someone who's now deserting the Gospel. And so one of the reasons that Paul expressed concern that the Gospel of grace was too wonderful to exchange for something that's not really Gospel. It's not really good news. The gospel of grace is about a gracious God. A gracious God who extends mercy and undeserved favor to helpless, rebellious, ruined sinners. And on the basis of grace, God gives His one and only Son to die for the likes of people like you and me who are at enmity against Him. And in grace, it is God who calls us. It is on the basis of grace that we are justified, declared right with God as we believe on Christ. And none of the blessings of salvation are due to our efforts, our merits, or our works. All of the privileges, all of the blessings of being a child of God are provided to us on the basis 
of grace alone. It is undeserved favor, period. Why is it so serious then? Well, when we desert the gospel of grace, there are monumental consequences. If we turn aside from being saved because of what Christ alone has done through faith alone on the basis of grace alone, we're not merely giving up just one idea for another. We're actually, notice this, verse 6, we're actually deserting the God of grace. He says you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. As one commentator said, quote, it is impossible to forsake the gospel without forsaking God. See, some people seem to think that the gospel of grace is primarily aimed at providing the way out of the consequences of our sin. And so the gospel, my friend, is not merely, although it is, it's not merely escaping the horrors of hell. Praise God, it does include that. It is true the gospel of grace includes an astonishingly costly payment on the part of Jesus, our Redeemer, who bore the wrath of God which we deserve for our sins. Praise God, that's true. Don't ever want to lose sight of that. But the benefit of Jesus' provision was to remove the obstacles that prevent us from knowing and enjoying and being in fellowship with God. You see, it's not just the fact that we get a get-out-of-jail pass so that you can go your merry way and ignore God and live life apart from God. That's not what salvation and gospel grace is about. And that's why I'm including in your notes a quote by John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel. He says this very important point. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And the people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there in heaven. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. Do you see that, my friend? The whole point of being in heaven is not to give you a self-fulfilled life so that you can do everything you want to do apart from God. The point of what we say in terms of being blessed to go to heaven is that you might be in the presence of God and enjoy God. Be delighted by God and not have this huge problem between us and God. That's all been resolved by Christ. Those last sentence he says in the quote. The gospel is not about way, next to the last. It, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. You say, come on, show me that in scripture. Okay, 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins once for all. Now why would Christ die for sins? Well, the righteous one took the place and the punishment of the unrighteous ones, which is what he says. The just one died for the unjust ones. Watch this. In order that 
he might bring us to God. You see it? The gospel is not merely escaping the horrors of hell. That's true. But the gospel is loving Christ. The gospel is knowing Christ. The the gospel is being filled with a sense of joy in knowing God. The gospel of grace is good news because God removes all the obstacles that prevent us from delighting in Him and being satisfied in Him. Now watch this. When we desert the gospel, we begin to rely upon our own efforts. We rely upon our own performance. And we slip into basing our joy on how well we are measuring up. And the problem with that is, my friends, is that when we desert the gospel and relying upon what we must do or what we must offer to God to somehow improve ourselves and to somehow relying upon ways that we must make amends for the ways of which we've failed, when we do that, my friend, we are suggesting that what Jesus provided is not adequate and not sufficient and thereby robs God of his glory. came across a couple of quotes. I wished I'd put them in your notes, but you're going to have to follow along carefully here because I found these after I'd done the notes on Thursday. Listen to this quote by Samuel Storms as he explains one more time what the gospel of grace means. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to somehow withdraw His grace in the presence of human demerit. Grace is treating a person without the slightest reference to desert, to desert, I mean to desert, whatever you deserve, whatsoever, but solely according to His infinite goodness and the sovereign purpose of God. Grace cannot be earned by your merit and it cannot be forfeited by your demerit. You say, well, sometimes, you know, when I relate to God, I oftentimes think to myself, God, I really am deserving an answer to this prayer I'm offering up to you because I have been doing this and I have been doing that right and I have been doing this and I did have my quiet time five times in a row last week. And we look to God and we somehow think because of my hard work for Him or somehow my sacrifice I'm offering to Him and I'm living at that moment, my friend, not by grace, I'm living by works as I relate to God. It's true also that sometimes we despair of ever experiencing a blessing from God because somehow we are so aware of our demerits. We're somehow always thinking of the oughts that I should have done. And we keep thinking that, oh, I should have done, oh, I ought to have done that. And, and oh, yes, I, I shouldn't have done that. And I did it anyway. And therefore, I've somehow cast aside any hope that God's going to bless me. My friend, you've lost sight of the grace of God, the gospel of grace. And sometimes for those of us who think, well, it's the number of times I have a quiet time in a row, or it's the fact that I've avoided losing my temper a certain number of times, or it's my level of involvement. I'm out at church four nights a week. Therefore, I can somehow expect God may somehow give me a blessing in my life. My friend, you've lost sight of the gospel of grace. Let me leave you this final quote. 
to the extent that you are clinging to any vestiges of putting any confidence in your own spiritual attainments, to that degree, you are not living by the grace of God in your life. Jerry Bridges. I would suggest to you what I've been struggling with this whole week is we can come to the, we can come to God with the gospel at the initial part of entering into the kingdom. But my friend, every day we need the gospel of grace and we need to keep preaching it to ourselves because guess what? We constantly fail in our performance of spiritual duty, but we relate to God on the basis of Christ and on the basis of grace. And so what? We need to get our eyes on Christ and less on ourselves and on other people and comparing yourself to other people, what they're doing, and enjoy. Delight yourself in God because why? Christ has knocked down all the barriers so that you might delight in God and he will delight in you. Praise God for grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to this wonderful truth. Whether we are here this morning in our hearts, if we had been truly honest, we would have said, all I want to do when I leave this world is just do what I enjoy doing and be consumed with myself. Lord, a heart like that is a heart that's not been regenerated, a heart that's still focused on self, a heart that's in need of grace, a heart that is still living apart from the life of God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of anyone here this morning who has realized that they're living for themselves and not living for Christ, and they've never really understood grace, that they still have a hard time fathoming how God can deal with us and give us such wonderful benefits when we don't have anything to offer in return. But Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, draw anyone who's here this morning to come to the point where they admit by their own repentant hearts that they desperately need a Savior, that they are desperate for grace, that they are poor and have nothing to offer you but their sin. And I pray, O Father, that you might help them to see with great delight what Christ has done in his death on that cross as a substitutionary atonement and then offering hope because of the resurrection from the dead, that we too, as sinners, can by grace receive new life, the life of knowing the God who's made us and knowing the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that would you give the gift of faith to someone here today who doesn't know you. And Father, for those of us who have embraced the gospel and been changed by the gospel of grace, I pray, Lord, would you help us to fill our minds and hearts with your gospel every day. Draw us, Lord, away from a self-focus in our Christian walk to be a Christ-focus in our Christian walk, to be filled with sense of wonder at the thought of your grace that lifts us up, gives us hope, gives us undeserved favor, favor that's rooted in Christ's performance, not our performance. Lord, fill us with your joy. Help us to enjoy you, Lord. Help us to delight ourselves in you. Help us to be 
enjoying the full benefits of what Christ has done to knock down the barriers so that we might be drawn and enjoy you. And toward this end, we pray that you would be magnified and glorified because of the wondrous gospel of grace. We pray in your name. Amen.